Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Polyamory and abortion. I mean, what could possibly go wrong trying to tackle (laughs) both of these topics in uh, an hour and a half or so? Well, we're going to find out. I am joined today by one of my favorite theologians and, of course, my good friend, Sarah Lane Ritchie, friend of the podcast. And we uh, we're not combining the two. This is not a conversation about when polyamory and abortion collide. It is two separate conversations with some through lines between the two of them uh, in a in a format that Sarah and I like to do every few months. Just get two shorter bits, cut ourselves off around 45 minutes and see where the conversation goes. So that's what we did. There's not a whole lot else to say. We do plenty of throat clearing at the beginning of each topic. So I'll just say if you enjoy hearing from Sarah, she's been on many times before previous episodes. Uh, You can skim back through the back catalog. Okay, let's get into it. Sarah, good to have you back. Our last one of these episodes where we hit two topics and try and limit ourselves in time. The last one was on death anxiety and what was that word we use? Like deep magic, that yeah. term, right? Mm-hmm. So if people like what they hear today, they like our uh, interaction, they should go back and check out that episode from a few months back. 
And today, you know, no big deal. What could possibly go wrong? We're just going to talk about two of the most controversial issues in the world. <laughs> Abortion and polyamory. And uh, I don't know. What what should we say? What kind of throat clearing is necessary here at the I beginning? I know. Like, what did we do? Like, were we in some sort of, like, dare where we had to come up with the two most potentially, like, explosive issues that we could find to talk about? Yeah. Uh, I do think that there was a sense of, like, mutual daring uh, like, let's in, try. Let's go let's, for it. Yeah. Like, let's kind of take the bull by the horns. I, I want to say one thing that applies to both topics, which is like, you know, I don't have a lot of clients yet. I will I actually will have some clients pretty soon through my um, internship site. But if you were to come to me as a client and you have had abortions or you are in a polyamorous relationship or thinking about one, like, I'm not going to judge you and treat you differently as a client. Like what we're doing here is like, we are talking as two thinkers about our take on something. And that's different than if a friend is going through something, how am I going to treat them? How would I treat a client, work with a client? Those are separate. So we don't have to, and this is really going to be broadly true for any clients of mine. We don't have to agree on everything. That's not what therapy is. That's not what, what you do. It's not just about like, chatting about issues and agreeing or disagreeing. So I just feel like I should say that because this, these issues are deep and mean a lot to people and, and are related to very intense emotions and commitments and meaningful experiences and all that. So that's my, that's my little caveat that applies to both. Yeah. And I I mean, similarly for me, I think that it's self-evident that these are complex issues that can be abstract at times. And we'll probably talk about them in uh, academic and intellectual terms as well yeah. as personal and therapeutic terms. Right. Um, but of course, these are real people at the middle of both of these topics. And I obviously, if if and when you and I are engaging with real people, that's how we engage people. Like as humans who are suffering and longing and relating and trying yeah. to make hard decisions. So that's obviously the the compassionate context that I would want to frame this all with. And there's not a ton of through lines between these two issues. Obviously they both deal with like sex in some sense, but I would say if there is a through line, it is that idea of like sometimes responsible adults have to make very difficult decisions that require a lot of discernment. Mm-hmm. And so people who have to make decisions about abortion are often in that case. They are not always in that case. And that's one of the yeah. things that I think we're both going to be concerned about. And sometimes people make decisions around relational openness for ostensibly or actually responsible reasons like their mm-hmm. children's welfare. And and so each of those instances is different and requires different discernment. And so we sh- I would, I acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And so my thoughts on these issues d- are not a sledgehammer that just sort of like bludgeon all the complexities of human life and human decision making. They're more about my intuitions, what I think is likely true. Mm-hmm. And like if I have to choose, what am I going to which way am I going to go? Yeah. Not so much like the law has been passed down by God. You shall not. You know, it's less mm-hmm. that for me. Yeah. And I think the through line for me between these two issues is that they both tend to elicit very strong reactions in people. And these reactions, the conversations themselves elicit in people is often not primarily 
reason based. And I don't think it needs to be necessarily like reason or rationality based. Um, I think these are both very triggering conversations and touch on extremely sensitive vulnerabilities within people. And that for me is a through line is that they're both potentially very sensitive topics that can be very difficult to talk about with a cool head. And maybe that's okay. Yeah, no, I like that. And I think that that's going to come up actually in both of these instances, the, the kind of visceral reactions that people have and, and tracing a little bit of why we think that that is. Mm -hmm. Last thing I'll say is it might be unclear just from the, the wording of the title of the episode, this is not an episode about the combination of abortion and polyamory. Eek, eek. Uh, this is these are two separate, you know, what there's a little bit. We'll see if they relate, but they're roughly two separate conversations about each. We're going to go approximately 45 minutes. We'll take a break. We'll do the other one. This is a, a little bit of an episode organization that you and I have have gotten into doing and that we like sort of limiting right. ourselves in time because we can talk at length, ad nauseum about almost anything. So, all right, let's 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 start with abortion. No big deal. I think the first thing I want to say about abortion is that so I, I'm curious, actually, where do you start when you're zoomed out? Mm-hmm. I, I know what I'm mm-hmm. going to say, but when you zoom out, what's the mm-hmm. first sort of like organizational thing about the abortion issue for you? Yeah, the, the, like how to even talk about yes. the talk? Yeah. Yeah. Two, two things. First is that this is an immensely complex issue and anybody who thinks it is simple or obvious or morally unambiguous is not paying attention to the scientific, philosophical, and theological dimensions of this conversation. Amen. 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 Yes. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that both the pro-life framing and the pro-choice framing are completely ineffective ways to frame the conversation and the various positions positions involved. So both pro-life and pro-choice, those framings, unhelpful. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah, that's good. I was going to say that my, my kind of zoomed out thing is that it is a legal issue and it is a moral issue and there is some overlap, but not complete overlap on that. So there are times when my moral intuition about what I would hope someone would do might conflict with my legal intuition about what I think the state can legitimately require someone to do. And, right. yeah. and so that's my, that's the short answer for me of really, it's one way of saying my position, which is I would want there to be as few abortions as possible, period. Also, mm-hmm. I'm not sure when it's good for the government to enforce that. Sure. So, so that yep. that's the shorthand for my answer, and and mm-hmm. I and it would be more often than what a lot of pro-choice advocates would say. I would probably be comfortable with more enforcement of or more disincentivizing of abortion. Maybe we should call it that, but not total. So there there are issues of autonomy of the mother or couple and the doctor and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So, but I really like what you said. Just totally agree. It's complex. That's that's maybe mm-hmm. the biggest thing. Let, let's start with this. Like, do you want fewer abortions also? Do we agree on that? I do. But for me to even say that presumes a lot of things. Okay. Right? What's it So presume? like even – well, it presumes that there's something not good about having an abortion, right? And so this is actually – this is actually mm. a big point of – dissension among people who are, who would call themselves pro-choice, right? So a lot of pro-choice people would say they want 
safe, legal, and rare abortions. Yes. But other people would say, no, if you say you want fewer abortions, you are saying something about the moral status of an abortion. And so I do say I want fewer abortions, but I recognize that that will be a contentious claim for some people who want to make a stronger pro-choice argument than I would. Okay. So let me, let me push back on that. If you could put yourself in that place of the person mm-hmm. who says that that's already, I tend to think yeah. of that as it's seeding ground to the enemy in a zero sum mm-hmm. warfare kind of way, which I do not take yeah. as a good reason. Right. That's just not a good reason for anything in my opinion. Um, right, right. But if you want to say, look, abortion is healthcare, which is a common mm-hmm. mantra on this side of the issue. Well, I right. also want fewer mastectomies. I mm-hmm. also want fewer tumors to have to be removed. I sure. want I mean, if it's a healthcare procedure, sure. then okay. we also want fewer of those. Like I don't I'm not seeing sure. how that solves it. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay. Yeah. If you are framing it in terms of we want fewer invasive healthcare procedures, fine. Yes. Yeah. Then I would say then then that's not contentious. But I think when most people say, I would like to have as few abortions as possible, usually what they're getting at is that there's some sort of moral tension or emotional toll that an abortion takes on somebody. And that in turn is often implies that there is some sort of really some problematic choice that has been made that has to be grappled with Mm. after the fact. Yeah. I think that that's a, wow, that's interesting. I think that's some slippery thinking because a lot of things happen that are hard and that we all wish would never have happened and are painful and leave scars that are not someone's fault, right? Right. Okay. So I still think that in your answer there, you are implying that a fetus is a human person. I, that was, I'm not implying that in this case. What I mean is to say, let's say someone says, let's say a therapist says, yeah, my clients who have had abortions, mm-hmm. it is something that we typically deal with for many months afterwards. It, it, mm-hmm involves a lot of pain uh, and it's very and why? It varies. why does it involve pain well i don't know it just varies it's a big decision it it physically is painful there's mm-hmm. some sense that like oh this there could have been a baby in this place and there's not going to be one even if i didn't want sure. it okay whatever it's yeah. complex it's it's whatever mm-hmm. you can have situations like that that are yeah. painful and whatever that are not someone's fault uh, totally. Someone getting cancer, but even being healed of cancer, but then yeah. having gone through the trauma of having to get a little radiation, you know, whatever. I'm I'm saying that's a jump. It, just because we say it's a harrowing experience with a lot of mm-hmm. pain that is emotionally complex, that mm-hmm. does not mean we're blaming people. Like the you can say right. those things separately. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. No. I I mean I totally agree. Again, I think that there should be fewer abortions. Yeah. I am only recognizing that there are people who won't use that language and who will say, "No, I am celebrating the fact that I had an abortion because it is exerting kind of like my right to choose and my ownership of my own body." And also it shouldn't be problematic for me because I don't think of a fetus as a human life or a human person. Yeah. And so like, that's, that, that's not me. So I'm, I'm distancing myself from that. It's not me, but I recognize that that is one camp within the pro-choice movement. That is the camp in the entire conversation that I am the least interested in talking with. Yeah. I'll so we admit. can probably like leave that aside <laughs> to be honest, because there's a, yeah, we can probably leave that. It's not where I'm at. So. I would do, I do want to talk a little bit about this kind of shout your abortion, you know, contingent a bit. It honestly makes me want to cry sometimes. Um, It seems to me like a kind of a childish overreaction to feeling hemmed in 
by someone mm-hmm. else's moral framework right. to feeling erased as a woman with agency and to then overreact by saying my agency is literally all that matters. Yeah. And here's where I think you get into a problem with that is like the fact that you can't apply that reasoning at all points in time mm-hmm. that abortion might occur in a cycle. Like you mm-hmm. would never tell someone to shout their 39 week abortion. I don't think so. Yeah. I think most yeah. people would consider that like about the cruelest thing ever. That's like mm-hmm. being excited about killing babies because a 39 week fetus even if you die can be taken Mm -hmm. out of your body and fully thrive and live a regular life like so where's the week shout your 22 week abortion shout your first trimester abortion it seems to me childish i'm getting emotional now i'm getting i'm getting into it let's Let's can we can we like name the core issue here this is going this is to my like second this is my second framing organizational principle is like pro-life and pro-choice are both terrible terms for what is at stake Good. on both for both camps yeah pro-life okay so, so-called pro-lifers also think women should have choices in life pro-choice people also think human life is important yes right yes. so so both both camps value they value life and choice so human life and human agency what is at stake is not whether the, the, these things are valuable. What is at st- what is at stake is what is the status, the moral status of the fetus. Mm-hmm. Is this fetus one? There are three. There are a few possibilities. Is this the fetus a human life, but not a person? Is it a human person and a human life? These are not the same thing. Mm. Personhood is not a scientific concept; it's a philosophical one. And does a biological life have a right to life even before it is a person? Yeah. So there are a few different categories yeah. that one that, that that kind of frame how one feels about these issues. And your answer on this will determine where you think lines should be drawn in terms of legality of abortion, yeah. morality of abortion, all of that. But let me just tell you, Sarah, if you don't like the terms pro-life and pro-choice, just wait till I introduce you to anti-choice and abortion rights. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> those are the those are the phrases I hear more often now to describe the other side only, never self-describe, right, right. which are even more militant. Right. You guys mm-hmm. hate choice and you mm-hmm. guys just you don't want your own rights, you just want the right to have abortions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like it's the it's like a maximally um, mm-hmm. diminutive way to describe the other side. It is. I wonder if we I don't see light in the tunnel for like better nomenclature anytime soon that is mutually respectful. It seems like most things, the polarization is increasing and the battle Mm -hmm. lines are being drawn, which I think this issue is a particularly good example of where polarization hurts us. I've talked Mm -hmm. many times on this show and depolarize about the deal that came across Obama's desk during his presidency, mm-hmm. uh, bipartisan deal to reduce abortions, shot down by both sides, uh, pulled the the pro-life groups pulled out because they couldn't be seen to be fraternizing with the enemy, compromising with Obama. And Obama pulled out and his people recommended he pull out because he could not be seen as compromising with pro-lifers for his supporters. Yeah. So yeah. that's an issue in terms of on the ground, polarization reduces cooperation of like Good healthcare compromises, Mm -hmm. for instance, Mm -hmm. the kind of stuff that I think we'd both like to see, which is like greater access to birth control Mm -hmm. to reduce Mm -hmm. abortions. But also polarization Mm -hmm. hurts 
the cause in that it makes it impossible to talk to the other side even more. They're more demonized. You're going to have a harder mm-hmm. time understanding their moral convictions, and you're going to be mm-hmm. more likely to be co-opted by the shout my mm-hmm. abortion side or, mm-hmm. on the other hand, the like bomb abortion clinics, like picket everybody side. Yeah. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. Agreed. So let's talk a little bit about this rights issue, because this is this is for me the nub and uh, of the issue is like, so I like your personhood versus life thing. It's really good to notice that that's a philosophical distinction. A biological life begins when a an egg is fertilized by one of many possible sperm, each of which would give it a slightly different DNA signature. And then we have Mm -hmm. a life now. That is not a hu- that's not a yet a human life. And in fact, all the time, women, uh, as you and I have both been intimately mm-hmm. familiar with in our own lives, those embryos don't stick. Right. And we don't blame God for aborting mm-hmm. embryos, <laughs> you know, right. like every few months or something like that when you happen yeah. to have a long period. So that's not the issue. It's true it's a new life, but that's sort of like not what's interesting about it. The question right. is, when is it a person? When does it have rights, either mm-hmm. moral rights given by God yeah. or civil rights given by the government? Yeah. And even in theological circles or Christian circles, I would want to almost like switch out the term rights because that's not really. Yeah. Most people don't talk, Dignity, talk in terms of rights. They talk soul, in terms. Yeah. Soul. Yeah. So that, that was the one thing I wanted to throw in here that for Christians, oftentimes what happens is you'll hear someone refer to a human life. And that is being used synonymously with like a dualistic human soul being implanted in the zygote, yes. really, the, 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 the zygote at the moment of conception. Right. And so there's a sort of a substance dualism that is underlying all of the Christian rhetoric around abortion and like life, human life, human life is beginning at conception. Right. Yes. Technically a biological life begins at conception, but like that. Zyga, that that embryo can like split into twins for weeks after the like conception, right? So it's like it's not it, it, well for a lot of reasons that we don't need to get into. It's really not as though an immaterial soul is implanted into the zygote at conception. If you can get rid of that and just like start talking more in holistic embodied terms about what it means to be a human, mm-hmm. then we can have a more productive conversation. Well, actually. I do want to talk about that with you. First of all, I love that little counter argument that if you think that twins have two souls, then the soul cannot begin at conception because they would have the same soul and then it would split into two. Now, you could make a you could make a sort of like, well, God grants us a soul at conception and then mm-hmm. God will grant a second soul when they split, but you're that's getting pretty hairy and you you don't want to make a that's not going to hold up nearly as well. Yeah. I just love, I've never heard that one actually. Just wanted to point that yeah, out. Yeah, That was actually, I mean, I had a, a bioethics class in undergrad at a very conservative Christian university. And I read a book on this and this is one of the kind of scientific kind of points that was made is as one of many, actually, I think there are so many little scientific markers, biological markers mm. for like 
increasing biological lifeness. There is not, I mean, a lot of people are surprised to know that there is not like a standard definition or a set of criteria for what constitutes even biological life, let alone personhood, which is a, an entirely different categorical concept. Right. And just like one of those biological markers is like, well, okay, it's no longer able to split into twins, right? Like that's just like one of many things that kind of is like a marker. Yeah. And the development of this, this the evolving, developing embryo. And I just want to say one thing here. I mean, just like putting my cards on the table, um, when it comes to the question of human life, I am very much a gradualist. This is an actual position as a gradualist. This is where I was going to go. Great. Define gradualism. So gradualism is this idea that personhood is something that one kind of evolves and develops into. It's not, it's not as though there, there is a, a light switch moment or a black and white moment, a binary where one second you're not a person and the next second you are. It's a much more realistic and I would say non-Western perspective where we don't insist on dichotomies and binary everything. It's a, it's a sort of an understanding of the inherent evolution and the inherent process that is at the heart of all reality. And it's very uncomfortable, I would say, for people in the West to sort of come to grips with this idea that something could be more or less a person or more or less human. But that is actually quite consistent with the biology of the situation. It's just hard for us temperamentally. It would be interesting to see how people in other cultures, perhaps in non-Western cultures, feel about something like gradualism. But what do you think about it? Well, it made me think of the default setting in Western, especially Western Christianity, that like humans and animals are of a completely different kind, that it's not really a gradual distinction between them. Mm-hmm. And then you you hear this when you – as I'm sure you have, when you talk to theologians and pastors who dig into the science, they mm-hmm. have to start messing with that category of like humans versus animals and recognize yeah. that like actually we're animals with like these different properties that allow us to do the kind mm-hmm. of stuff that we consider religious. Although interestingly in the mm-hmm. text, there are really cool bits about how rocks and animals and – the sunset, you know, these things have religious impulses as well, yeah. according to the Bible. And I think that's a cool yeah. way to, to reintegrate, but, or it's a good resource for thinking about reintegrating that stuff. But yeah, this gradualism is where I wanted to go because this has been yeah. one of the, it's probably been one of the major changes for me in terms of how I think about human persons and not, not just in terms yeah. of dignity and an abortion, but in terms of like you, you brought up, you know, so mm-hmm. mind, body or, or body, soul dualism, mm-hmm. uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to what I believe now, which is some kind of monism, some kind of, no, mm-hmm. like I am my body and, mm-hmm. and probably something emerges from my body that is, is not reducible to just the bits of my body. And that's my consciousness. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's my soul. People really, there's a lot of disagreement about what you would call, which, which bits of these would be your soul, but whatever mm-hmm. it, it's some kind of gradualism and emergence out of physicality. And if that's yeah. true, then yeah, the idea that like at the moment of conception, God grants a supernatural immaterial soul to that zygote doesn't mm-hmm. track anymore for me. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, okay, in the gradual development, ha- like to what extent do we take into account what will naturally happen? 
Okay. Yes, so exactly. assuming no, assuming basic nutritional me- needs are met for the mother, that the mother does not starve herself or have some other medical condition that starves her, and assuming a safe delivery of some sort, this thing will be, you know, within nine times out of ten, mm-hmm. ninety-eight times mm-hmm. out of a hundred, whatever that number is. And interestingly, medical science changes that number, mm-hmm. which I think is really. Uh, kind of a mind, mm-hmm. you know, so how much do we give, how much value do we give to that potentiality, that kind of natural yep. potentiality? Yep. And that is very, very hard to know. But I think that one of the ways that I lean pro-life is that I do think morally we ought to weight potentiality quite high. Uh, and I'll give right. you a reason why. If you are seeing a very disturbed client, for instance, who's got bipolar disorder and has ruined their marriage and whatever, you know that with treatment, their life could get a lot better and you're Mm -hmm. valuing them at that possible life, that possible flourishing. That's another way of saying the way that God sees us, like God values Mm -hmm. us at full flourishing versions of us. Mm -hmm. And so that is a reason Again, it's all mm-hmm. complex. None of these are knocked down, but that's a reason to take that potentiality very seriously. That like yeah. to value people or potential people at the highest thing they could be is a good rule of thumb for a bunch of reasons, not just in abortion. I don't know. That's one thought. It's yeah, right. So two things, like a, a sort of a more constructive uh, direction. But first, like the, I mean, the critique of your argument there is that you could, like the Catholics, like the Roman Catholics, you could sort of move that line back one more step and say, well, potentially every egg and every sperm right. coming together is a potential life. So even using contraception is inhibiting the is inhibiting what could be. Yeah. We always inhibit what could be, right? And so we are we are constantly making decisions about what sorts of things we're going to allow and not allow, even if those things could be good things. Yep. So if you have ever used birth control, you have made a decision to not allow something to be. Yep. So that's sort of like the broader conceptual pushback to that. But the more probably constructive thing here is that what is interesting is that that intention and sort of like that knowing what could be can play out in, in, in different ways. So Dan, for you and I, I mean, this is very personal. So you both, you and I have experienced, well, you and Jaffrey and me and Martin have experienced the pain of not being able to have children and then the miracle of IVF. And we yeah. both know what it is like to be told that we have a viable embryo and that that embryo has implanted. And then we see the tiny little spark on an ultrasound and we cry tears of joy because that for us is a life. That is a human life. That is a baby. That's my, that's my child that is now growing inside of my, inside of my body. I don't care if it's only 12 cells. Like it's just, it is a fact that we consider that we treat that our intention towards that little organism is as toward a child. Now, what is also true is that you could be a 17 year old girl from an underprivileged background who does not have a supportive family, who maybe just was able to get a scholarship to a university. And if she has a child, she is not going to have a future. She will not, she just does not have the resources available to her or to sort of to, to pursue the opportunities that have been given to her and to sort of live a flourishing life. And she is also fast forwarding that tape and seeing what will happen if she you know, chooses to, 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 to bring this embryo into a full human person 
like life. Yeah. One thing that is not clear to me is the role that one's intention towards your own body, towards the thing that is growing in your own body should play and the status of how that that embryo is treated. It's actually a live, like a live discussion for me. I, my knowledge, actually, my moral knowledge is that given how I feel about that baby growing in, in my, in my body, it would be wrong for me to abort that because of how I feel towards it, because I consider it to be my child. I don't know, actually, yeah. Because for me, if I were to, if I were to have an abortion, believing it to be my child and to believe in wanting it and, and, and not desiring it to, if for some, I don't know, I don't, I can't imagine a circumstance in which that would happen. But like it, for me, I would experience it as wrong to abort that baby if it had been longed for, planned for, and I was intending to bring it up as a child and something crazy happened and I just decided randomly to abort it. And I'm not saying that that ever happens for people. I'm just saying that that would, for me, it would have been like an impossibility because I'm like, no, it's a, it's my child. However, I can also say that 17-year-old girl, I would say she was wrong. I would not, I personally would not say that she was sinning or wrong or morally, morally undermining herself by having an abortion three weeks after finding out she was pregnant. I, I, I don't, I have no, I have no judgment. For me personally, I could not make that choice, but I, I, I can't say that that would be wrong for her. The example of a 17-year-old girl who got the scholarship or whatever, that's, that's a good example of of trying to, of making it the way it is complicated. Uh, I I said that poorly, but you understand what I'm saying? Like, that's a good Mm -hmm. example because that's the kind of complications we often do run into. I want to say a couple things on that though, just so that we're clear on what the real costs are. Yeah. If adoption is a possibility, then it isn't probably true that that girl has no future if she has the kid. No, but then you have to factor in, you have, you cannot imagine. Sure. I, okay. What I can't imagine, what I can't imagine is being at a place in life when you know that you cannot allow this embryo to grow into a baby and take care of that baby. I can acknowledge that you are not in a place to be able to, 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 yeah. to do that. And I can acknowledge that you might be in a place when you want to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. What I cannot imagine is being asked to take a baby to full term because the hormonal, like, shit storm that happens in your body. I mean, it's like your body is biologically primed to make you fall in love with this baby that is growing inside of you. Like that is, this is how biology works. It is almost inhuman to, to ask a girl who does not want it, who does not want this child to carry it to full term. It will, because that you think it's traumatizing for her to have an abortion, try carrying a baby full term and then giving it up for adoption. If that's not your choice, if that's not what you actually want to do, if someone is telling you, you need to give this baby up for adopt put this baby up for adoption and you need to take this pregnancy to full term, the, the emotional toll of that on someone, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine the trauma of that being asked to take a baby to full term. If I did not want to have a child and then asked to go through birth, which is the most physically painful thing that's ever happened to me. And then being asked to give away that baby when you have like insane levels of hormones raging through your body, telling you that it is like an, like a biological atrocity for you to park with that baby, mm-hmm. even though you know that it's not right for you to raise it up, yeah. you know? So it's like, I think we cannot under, we cannot overestimate what a t- cost that is on a human. And I don't think anybody should ever be placing that cost on somebody else. And that should, that should be a choice that that girl makes herself. It's really difficult. I mean, one thing I want to say here is a lot of men at this point will say, 
I don't have a uterus, so I don't get to have a say in this question. And I think that that is a massive cop-out. It assumes that the fetus person, potential person or whatever has no rights, which means it's it's basically just already giving away the argument mm-hmm. to kind of the the most the, the most simplistic moral mm-hmm. vision of it. So so I'm not comfortable saying that. And I know a lot of guys will do that and they will think that they're being kind of mm-hmm. cool and and high minded. No, I agree with you. I actually agree with you because okay, let me say one one thing and then I'll yeah, let you like, finish. Like, I agree with you. And it bothers me when people say, oh, you don't get to have a say in this um, because you've never gone through it. Or you're not a woman. You don't have a body because it's like, well, that's not the issue. The issue is that we now have two lives we have to talk about and not just one. That's the issue. The whole issue is that it's not just the mother and not just the woman. It is also the potential um, well, the biological life, the potential person that is growing inside of her. And so it's like th- that, that is the whole debate. Like this is a, this, this is the whole question right. is like, at what point do we need to consider the rights of an unborn child? Yeah. Yeah. So it just, it, it gives up the whole argument by saying, we don't have to, we, we don't have to, the only, the only people yeah. that, the only people that get to consider the rights of the third party are the people with uteruses is a weird way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. You want to say something? We would never apply that to any other. We would never apply right. that to any other. Guns. Like, we don't apply Like I don't know guns. So I don't have life, to. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't want to say you pulled a move because you didn't pull a move. But this is something that I do see where someone will talk about, okay, there's the there's the weight of having to raise a kid. And then you say, well, maybe there's adoption. Well, okay, so it's not that weight. It's this other weight mm-hmm. of having to and, – and not that those things aren't real weight, but mm-hmm. they're also different weights. And, mm-hmm. and some of them are empirical questions, right? Like uh, what percentage of women who give up their child for adoption and choose to carry it to term regret it? Another question mm-hmm. is to what extent is that regret a good indicator of what should be done? I mean, of course, you can – it's it's ad nauseum. You can ask every question, mm-hmm. but like discomfort is a soft word. And sometimes people can use inconvenience or discomfort to minimize what the woman goes through. Let's just call it suffering. Mm-hmm. So that's non like how much suffering on average, if you're writing a law uh, mm-hmm. and you're averaging it all out on the part of a mother who got pregnant, is it worth for the ability of the child to be born and have a life through adoption, possibly state care, which is not ideal. Mm -hmm. But there's also sometimes creeps in, and I don't think you did this, but it can creep into these conversations where, well, a child raised by another family or raised by the state, well, that life is so bad. They're going to be poor. They should probably just not be alive. And that's basically eugenics. And that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that we get on the Nazis about. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not only that they killed Jews, but that they were active eugenicists. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, like these things, it's it's tough. Like and and this is where I want to bring in Down syndrome. You know, in Iceland, Mm -hmm. there are one to two children per year born with Down syndrome now in Denmark. 90, they have universal free Down syndrome screening and 95% of people choose to abort. Mm-hmm. That's about five times the U.S. rate. And mm-hmm. basically Down syndrome people are becoming extinct in some of these Northern mm-hmm. European countries. And Down syndrome people are f-ing awesome. I know that there mm-hmm. are some and that's a, it's one of those sort of severity. There's a severity spectrum for Down syndrome and, yeah. and some of those lives are really, really rough. But we have all met 
lovely Down syndrome adults who mm-hmm. I'm very glad exist, you know, and, mm-hmm. and like have a life worth living. And so we do have to recognize that even if, even if we are right, morally, ethically, and the government, the laws all get in place and mm-hmm. we actually can't constrain people's decisions, whatever, a natural consequence of this is like mm-hmm. eugenics on Down syndrome. It's, it's, that's, I don't know exactly what to do with that. It's scary. Yeah. I get visceral. I viscerally react to that. I have a lot mm-hmm. of like deep moral feelings about something like that. Yeah, no, I do too. I mean, and again, like just kind of putting my cards all on the table, like my inclination is always to fight for life. Like I am, mm-hmm. I am one who wants every potential life to exist. And a part of it is my own like fertility and fertility journey. And part of it is because I've also experienced what it's like to feel like people are encouraging one to let people go too soon at the end of life. So when my mom was dying, Mm. I felt like our family was almost being pressured into like stopping care and treatment for her. And I, I was like the last one in our family who was like, no, we will give every treatment possible. We will like extend a life. And and I understand all the arguments against that, but like my kind of like visceral natural inclination is to fight for life whenever possible. So I would never have an abortion personally. Um, but this is different for me. So when I was pushing back on you a few minutes ago, I'm not pushing back. I'm not saying that a woman's suffering or discomfort should trump the uh, status of the, or trump the life of the child. If we have determined that it is a child, right? What I am, what I was pushing back on is the assumption that it's not a high cost that we are asking of people. So you were saying, so, so basically if I should, I think that we should never, ever, ever minimize the hidden toll that like carrying a pregnancy to term and then giving a baby up for adoption takes on a woman. Yeah. That's my only point is that like, you don't get to decide. I don't think that if you're not her, you don't get to decide how much suffering she will have to go through to comply with your law. Uh, you can still say, you can still say the law is worthwhile, but you don't get to say anything about her level of suffering that she will experience because of it. I see what you're saying. So you might have an intuition about what the law ought to be, but you, you never have the right to minimize the suffering. Yes. But I was thinking like, look, if we fast forward a few years, the way that we tend to think about people with young children, because we have established that they are full persons, is like, oh, you struggle with drugs and you don't want to take care of your child. Well, I'm sorry, but you need to go through the suffering of recovery and rehab or you will have your children taken away from you. And mm-hmm. we we do mm-hmm. make people – we force them to go through very painful things when yes. there are rights of another individual at play. And so I guess what I'm saying is, and you're agreeing, is that I don't want to minimize the suffering. I don't Mm -hmm. want to say it's nothing. I want to recognize Mm -hmm. the male privilege I have in this Mm -hmm. kind of a conversation. However, to simply say it is a lot of suffering doesn't solve it. It it comes down to, again, do they have Mm -hmm. rights? Do they have personhood? All right. So let's say that we both agree that like um, we want to minimize – we want to like – minimize the number of abortions that are happening. Neither of us would choose this for ourselves. And we acknowledge that personhood is a developmental thing. It's a gradualist thing. Yeah. And that there is complexity and nuance at every stage of the of fetal development. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about you, but like I was very, I really, I really struggled kind of like, like within myself about how I feel about abortion as my pregnancy was progressing. And I realized that I was like, 
treating each week as a milestone, right? So I'm like, yes, we oh my too. God, 20, yeah. 24 weeks. Babies have been born at 24 weeks oh, yeah. and have survived. And yep. so like 24 weeks, 25 weeks, 26 weeks. And then yep. what was weird for me was like recognizing this gray zone in the middle where a woman could legally have an abortion and also the baby would survive if given IC, ICU care, mm-hmm. right? So there's this gray zone where it's like, you'll have, you can imagine having an OB wing, like a, a maternity wing in a hospital. And in one hospital room, you'll have uh, an expectant mother at 24, 25 weeks, let's say, going into labor or 24, let's say 24 weeks, kind of trying, fighting off labor, but they're basically preparing to put this child in the, in the NICU. And then literally the next door over, you could have a woman preparing for an abortion at 24 weeks. Yeah. Uh, an elective abortion. Like what? Like that's, that's fucked up, right? That is fucked up that both of those things could be happening yeah. <laughs> that, that like, you know, in one, in one mother we're preparing to abort and in, or one woman we're preparing to abort. And then the other woman we're preparing to treat this as a child. And it's the intention of the woman that determines this. Yeah. I'm uncomfortable. This is problematic. I'm uncomfortable <laughs> with it being the intentional <laughs> yes. of the one that, that I know. that's too finicky. Uh, First of all, intentions change moment to moment. There's no such thing as like a, a concrete and stable intention. That seems like a bad – but I was just thinking too, this also complicates the pro-choice argument of how much suffering someone is going to have to go through. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe it doesn't complicate it. It does something interesting though because the example of a 17-year-old who just found out three weeks ago that she's pregnant, let's say she's eight or nine weeks along. Well, she's got a lot more pregnancy in front of her, but mm-hmm. the woman that's at 24 weeks and chooses an elective pregnancy. And if we want to say, look, you know what? I think you should give this kid yeah. up for adoption. They, mm-hmm. she's only got three more months yeah. maybe. And, mm-hmm. and so even though that's not nothing and I'm not minimizing it and the, all the hormonal stuff and the, the natural biological chemical attachment to the attachment to that baby when it's born, mm-hmm. that would be a, a very painful sort of emotional rupture. That's all mm-hmm. there, but the total amount of suffering is much lower. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like it's, it's what it does to that part of the argument of the, mm-hmm. the cumulative suffering of the mother of the pregnant woman the longer you wait, the less of that suffering is left, and it yeah. would kind of argue for pushing that threshold earlier because the later we get, the less of an of a good argument that is to 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 allow a later mid late term abortion okay, I want to talk like more specifically about the status of or the the, the rights of a human life that is mm-hmm. dependent on another life. Okay. Have you heard of the violin thought experiment, the violinist thought experiment? Oh, probably. Okay. But, All right. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you, and then I want you to tell me your intuitions. Okay. So this is really kind of like, this is really a way to evaluate people's intuitions about the rights and the responsibilities Love it. Of, of different people. Okay. So this, um, this is basically in a paper called a defense of abortion. And this thought experiment was, is a famous thought experiment that was posed by a uh, woman named Judith Jarvis Thompson. Now here it is. You wake up in the morning and find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He has been found to have a fatal kidney ailment and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all the available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They have therefore kidnapped you. And last night, the violinist circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. 
If he's unplugged from you now, he will die. But in nine months, he will have recovered from his ailment and can safely be unplugged from you. Now, the moral question here is, do you as a human have the right to choose not to allow yourself to be the life source, the, the sort of the, 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 the thing on which this other person is dependent for those next nine months is you keeping this individual alive, a, a, a moral necessity on you, or is it a kind thing that you can choose to do for the violinist, but which you are not forced to choose to do? My intuition is that this thought experiment is closer to instances of rape that lead to mm-hmm. pregnancy than mm-hmm. it is to the average pregnancy that might be ending in abortion. So be, now uh, not counting the violent act of rape itself, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but assuming you were drugged and raped or something like that, where you don't have a conscious traumatic experience, you're passed out, someone rapes you and you find out that you're mm-hmm. pregnant. There's probably mm-hmm. still, I'm sure there are still psychological effects of that, but that's not how pregnancy works in most cases. You Well, no, but a lot of people get pregnant, not wanting to get pregnant. I mean, presumably this is the point. Yes, not wanting to. Uh, And a lot of people, this is a silly example. So again, I'm not diminishing. A lot of people get stoned out of their minds by taking a big edible when they meant to take a smaller edible. Right. I mean, like if you take an edible and you're not quite sure what's in it, one possibility is there's a lot more in it than you think. And you're going to be going crazy. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's good. But if anything, what it what the what it makes me realize is that I I do factor in the choice as part of the overall picture that I chose to Mm. have sex. So but there are no, 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 because there are all sorts of there are all sorts of reasons. Okay. oh, my God. So now we're getting into like a, a broader most times. People choose to have sex and that no, leads to I know, pregnancy. But see, yeah. No, but that is a very privileged take on choice. So, But it's not – I'm not only talking about choice. Maybe let – me, let me rephrase it. It's not just about choice. It is about sort of natural events that occur after other events. Yeah, but Const- you could be a girl that like – has sex because she's looking for validation and love has never been. She does not have a supportive family around her to talk to her about birth control or safe sex. She doesn't have the resources necessary to make informed sexual choices. And she finds, which which honestly is like a lot of abortions that happen is people who just don't have the resources. They don't know their own bodies, but they don't understand how fertility works and that you can get pregnant Mm -hmm. when you can get pregnant, when you can't get pregnant. Like there are a lot of knowledge deficits in people who get pregnant on with unwanted pregnancies. These are also people, people who don't have the permission structure talk about you have permission mm-hmm. people who don't have the permission to structure to have open conversations about their own bodies about sure. sexuality yeah and so to say that people that most i would say even to say that most people who have abortions have chosen to have sex knowing that they very well could get pregnant is to oversimplify the situation in a lot of cases in a lot of cases that's true but the number of cases where the level of knowledge about pregnancy occurring is akin to the violinist is is very few that's what i'm saying so but in the moment you know this you're you're like a psychologist like this is you're like a psychologist like <laughs> i, I am that. like, a, like psycholo- a psychologist which is accurate um, yeah. i know right because i'm not there. one yeah um, almost there uh but like when we find ourselves in situations in which we are acting yeah it is not accurate to say that we are always freely choosing those actions there are pressures on us for why we might end up in bed with somebody you know i'm with you on all of that 
What I am, right, that's what I'm saying. and it's you like know, that. I'm with you. But the violinist thought experiment is not really like that. You wake up, and someone has connected you to a violinist okay, with there... no knowledge, no precipitating events. And then the question is, do you have to stick to this guy for nine months so that he can okay. live? Yes, that is a that really is... powerful thought experiment, and I'm saying it only applies partially. In most cases of abortion, not fully to where the weight of it is. Yeah, there's some weight, but it then just has to be brought up against the other things that have weight to it. It works as a kind of a knockdown case in very few instances, perhaps like rape or really a young woman that actually did not know that being having sex with this man would make her pregnant. I would be I'm very open to modifying things in a situation like that. But that's just – that's like 1% or less of pregnancies. And so what I'm saying yeah, I is – I mean just imagine I, – I, you could, Imagine we could your take kid a, though. D- we could take a different approach, which is mm-hmm. just like it's a big thing to carry a child. It's like a lot of energy and suffering and whatever. I'm, But we've already done that. We're, we're already counting that in and it's part of my – it is part of my formula, if you will, for thinking about this issue. The violinist yeah. thing only works – as it's like it, or it only is a knockdown argument that sort of takes the other ones off the table in a very small number of cases. That's all I'm saying. So my intuition does not lead me to that conclusion, but okay. I understand that yours does. Mine, so my, and there are does, people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I understand and there are people in the philosophy, philosophy. Yeah, yeah. The philosophy circles around this thought experiment who would agree with you on this. Yeah. There are others who would say that you could change the thought experiment a bit to basically mean that you like. Like the phenomenal phenomenological reality of just like waking up and realizing that you are supporting a life and you don't want to, and you don't, you just like didn't expect it to happen. You didn't expect it to happen. You don't feel as if you chose it. You don't feel as if you chose it. And you just are like now burdened with having to support this life. Now, the key issue here in terms of abortion is whether or not taking the violinist off of life support essentially, and like letting him die is the same thing as what's happening, happening in abortion, which one could say is a little more actively sure. causing the demise of, yeah, that's another you know, problem or, yeah. or, but, but some people would say it's the same thing. Some people would say, you're not like trying to kill the the embryo or the fetus. You're just removing it from the mother and it died. You know what I mean? So there's, yeah, there's a whole like weird mess of issues. That's yeah. Interesting. Well, we only have, yeah. we got, we're going a little long, but we'll do five more minutes on this topic. That naturally brings in something that I did want to bring up, which is, A lot of the conversation around more pro-choice intuitions focuses on autonomy, personal autonomy Mm -hmm. a lot. And this violin example is a good example. Like, do I need to give up my autonomy for nine months and lay in bed to save this person's life? And it's very difficult to imagine living in a time when we are less driven by Mm -hmm. the moral value of autonomy. But – I think it's good to recognize that we live in a time historically that has completely maxed out almost to the exclusion of any other moral, you know, in mm-hmm. some cases of any other moral value, autonomy, my right yeah. to, to choose, my right to have freedom. Now, that is because that autonomy has been hard won, especially for many groups of people, black people in America, women, sexual minorities. Autonomy is great. I enjoy my autonomy I enjoy the shit out of my autonomy. I love it. I would not give any of it back. I know that about myself. (laughs) I would probably cling to it in immoral ways. However, ought I cling to my autonomy? I'd 
I think probably not. Like, I think we're probably wrong about some of that in a way that's very difficult for us to see. And so I do want to, I want to sort of control for that and knock down autonomy arguments, at least some, and let Mm -hmm. collectivist arguments, like good of the group arguments, good of this new individual that, well, does he or she have their autonomy and when do they get it? That's again, the question of personhood and rights, but like, so that's a bit of it too. And, and, and yeah. pro-choice messaging at its worst is mm-hmm. like autonomy only and there are no other considerations. And pro-life messaging at its worst is ignoring the autonomy question. Mm-hmm. Autonomy of the mother, I should say. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is really interesting is to look at the – we don't we shouldn't go into it now, but like to look into the history of, the, of abortion positions and – political persuasions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't always like this. And I, like, I remember, I remember like, I'm, I'm continually baffled by the way that pro-choice is, is linked with the Democrats, the liberals, 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 I should say, not yeah. like Democrats. And, like, and pro-life is linked with the conservatives because the liberals are more consistently. And I would like consistently over time, much more devoted to critiquing the myth of autonomy and promoting care of the weakest yeah, welfare state. And right. the, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So it's like if you were to just like look at the issues without knowing the current socio sociocultural like situation, you I think you would probably think that the pro-choicers would not be the liberals. I think that because yeah. like my 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 there I am a liberal for the same reasons that I am I that I struggle with abortion. Hmm. <laughs> That's yeah, it's interesting. And yeah. and there's like a strong libertarian argument for pro-choice, but libertarians mm-hmm. tend to be more conservative, uh, mm-hmm. more likely on the right for kind of like, you know, business and taxation reasons and stuff. And yeah, it's so it is complex. And and it's one of those issues. It's also interesting how stubbornly divided it remains. Like it just stays mm-hmm. 50-50. Whereas yeah. I think a lot of pro-choice advocates mm-hmm. want to think of it as a justice issue like women's rights and gay rights and mm-hmm. transgender rights. The thing is, it doesn't act that way. Ideas on those have all changed and become much more mm-hmm. popular over time. Yeah. And abortion just sticks because it is maybe because and this might be a nice place to wrap it up, maybe because it just is a question at the intersection of what makes us human and what yeah. makes life worth living. And that yeah. that is just an intractable. It just gets at them. It gets at all those questions in a naturally intractable mm-hmm. kind of a way. Yeah. Such that people are just divided in, intuitionally mm-hmm. and morally on mm-hmm. it. Yep. Totally agree. And I would also say that it's one of those things where like once you see it one way, it's really difficult to not see it that way. Yeah. Like, you know, like those magic or the, those like those yeah. illusions. They have like illusions where it's like, ones, once, yeah. 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 Or it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. Like it's a bit like that for me where I, th- I find that people, once they just sort of inherently, like they viscerally just get that oh my gosh it's this child it's really difficult to persuade them that it's not a child and vice versa is also true yeah well that was great we're gonna take a break and uh i'm gonna go ahead and steal myself for the next discussion okay (laughs) what could possibly go wrong abortion and polyamory in one episode oh my god okay If you'd like to support this podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke. Patrons get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month that are not on the regular feed, 
and access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, which actually makes it a lot better of a group. Honestly, ask anybody who's in there. Um, the most recent patron episode was early, well, not really early findings, uh, substantial findings. The first conversation around those findings from my big 3,200 person survey on sexual, sorry, spiritual abuse. Wow. What kind of a Freudian slip was that? Um, and uh, it's with Josh Gilbert, our editor and sometimes co-producer. And that was an awesome conversation. And coming up this week is a conversation with Ash Nerve, co-host of Boys Bible Study podcast. They review Christian films, usually lower budget kind of B films. Uh, and he's got a really interesting story and perspective on all that stuff. I had a great time talking with him. And I have enjoyed getting to know him a little bit since doing their show a few months ago. So to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Uh, that link is in the show notes. It's $5 a month. And if your spouse is a patron and you'd like to join the Facebook group, you can do so. There is a little button you can click that says, my spouse is a patron. All right, back to the show with Sarah. So one way that we might start this conversation around polyamory is to figure out where we each think the burden of proof lies. This is a, yeah. a phrase that's commonly used in philosophy. If people disagree on something and maybe there's some evidence already around, then it's like, well, the person offering the new thing or the person going against sort of like the weight of the evidence, the burden of proof is on them to show that the old way is not working because it sure seems to work. Who do you think the burden of proof is on? Is it on the polyamorists or is it on the traditionalists? Let's if we want to call them that. Yeah, sure. So I yeah, I, I definitely think that the burden of proof is on traditionalists who will say that polyamory is out of bounds inherently. Yeah. OK, I would say the opposite. Okay. And I would say that the burden of proof is on the polyamorists to show that this approach could exist in a healthy way that does not involve patriarchy and subjugation mm -hmm. of people with less power, that does mm -hmm. not involve, broader, broad, more broadly speaking, imbalanced power dynamics even within an egalitarian society, but where one partner is pushing for more freedom than the other. And thirdly, that it would not result in problems for children. Sure. I, I don't think that that's impossible. Mm-hmm. And we can get into we'll, – now we'll get into kind of our beliefs on it. But that I thought that might be interesting to start. So we do have different intuitions about where the burden of proof lies. Right. So, yeah, I mean, at the get-go, I think these are two completely separate issues. There's, a, there's the question of pragmatism, practicality, psychological health, the extent to which this actually works well in practice. I think that is one set of issues. And I separate that from the moral status of relational constellations, if you will. Mm, okay. Yeah, I, I'm just noticing you're, you're making me realize that my shifting on the morality of a situation like this is a lot more outcomes based than it probably mm -hmm. used to be. So I don't have as much of a visceral reaction to like, oh, but he also puts his penis there or, mm -hmm. you know, that that's less what it's about. And it's more mm -hmm. like, what will this do to your relationships? What will this do to your children if you have them? Are you doing this because it is a better situation for you or are you coping for something else that is that is the real issue or and right. So, okay, 
I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself because I did want to give a couple, sure. I wanted to do a little throat clearing here. Like here are a few things that I think are true. There's a difference between monogamy mm-hmm. and only have one sex partner for your entire life, which is maybe something more like classic purity religious mm-hmm. teachings. Um, mm-hmm. When I talk about monogamy, I'm talking about like you attempt to have one at a time. Mm-hmm. That does not mean you'll succeed. And perhaps you and I, you probably should date many people and like get a sense of whatever. Another thing I think is true is that monogamy is is harder for certain people for reasons outside their control than for other people. And I don't want to judge Uh, I don't think that people are morally better who have an easier time cleaving to one person, but that doesn't mean I think that the approaches are equal, right, in their outcomes. And then the last thing I want to say is that – well, actually, two more more kind of caveats. One, relationships can be hard. There are all kinds of relationships, marriages. People have all kinds of arrangement. Often those are make like abortion decisions – in a difficult discernment fashion, trying to be responsible, uh, especially if you have children, trying to do what's best for the kids. And I'm not putting myself in in the judge's chair over those individual decisions that people make. And then lastly, there is a problem in the Christian church with a kind of fetish, a fetishization of marriage and the family, the nuclear family unit, as described in Victorian romance poetry and novels. That we have a lot of, we have a very hard time with single people. We have a very hard time, especially as those single people get older. There's a kind of a pressure to pair, uh, P A I R, as I've seen it written. I think that's a real issue. So all those things are real, and also I'm very skeptical of polyamory. <laughs> So that's kind of where I'm coming. That's kind of the line I'm trying to walk here. And that I and that I really do think the burden of proof is not on me. I'll, I'll list my reasons and stuff. But but I just think that it's, you know, it might be more of a fantasy for most people than a legitimate option that can lead to a healthy life. Not for no, but not for yeah. nobody. But I guess it'd more be like, but for probably very few. That's probably where I would land on it. Right. Well, that's almost an empirical question then. That actually has very little to do. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of- And we are going to talk about the Mm peer-reviewed research whenever you want to, but I I, I looked into Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I did not. That's really interesting. I'm very curious to hear about it. Yeah. So my just sort of like the kind of broad uh, meta level concerns for me- well, just some clarifications. Like when we talk about polyamory, I think my, my suspicion is that when I say polyamory, most people will hear- you can fuck whoever you want. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about here. When I use when I talk about polyamory, what I'm talking about is the recognition that all of us are complex people. None of us will end up in partnerships, marriage or otherwise, like life partnerships or monogamous partnerships, where all of our legitimate human needs for connection are being met in all the ways that we legitimately desire them to be met. Now, yeah. the classic traditional response to this is that you, it's like a soul making defense, really, which is like, it's like a theodicy. It's like the, the Irenaean mm. theodicy where it's sort of like, yeah, you're going to suffer in marriage, but it's going to make you stronger. And so we just sort of like buckle down and say, yeah, we kind of like, we, uh, we recognize that not all of our needs are going to be met by this one person. And we try and find our, uh, fill, we, we try and find connections with other people in right. non-polyamorous ways. In non-sexual that, ways, basically. In non-sexual yeah. ways. But as we all know, 
there are ways to be unfaithful to a partner that have nothing yeah. to do with sexual intercourse. You yeah. can, we all know that you can have an emotional affair with somebody. We all know that there are, there are emotional, intense, intimate bonds with people that you can have that never involve you guys kissing or getting undressed. You know, like this is right. You like, there are different sorts of connections that people can have. We also, I think millennials, especially like we know really, really well that the Disney lie is, is, is it is, a, it's a myth, right? We yeah. know that you don't yeah. like marry your Prince charming and get swept off into fantasy land and live happily ever after. We know we we all grew up like very sober minded about like our, the prospects for relationships. We know that they're hard. We know that the one person is never going to meet all of your needs. We know this shit. Okay. I'm so tired of being told, well, you shouldn't expect your spouse to meet all of your needs. Like, well, yeah, yeah. no shit, no shit. Right. But the more important question I think is, okay. So recognizing that each pair, let's say traditional kind of married couple is in a relative, like is in a, is in a relationship where they may experience varying, well, they will experience varying degrees of closeness and connection in different ways. So you might have one couple who is like just kind of that golden couple. They just are in love with each other. They always have been, they're married as high school sweethearts and it just worked for them and it was easy. And they just are perhaps temperamentally wired, you know, maybe, maybe they're sort of personality portfolio is such that they were just very easy. They didn't have high expectations. You know, they just sort of got along well. And then you'll have other people who are particularly intense, pretty complex. I'm like talking about myself here, you know, (laughs) who find, who find a holistic connection to be more challenging because it requires a certain symmetry that is really difficult to find. And so what you end up doing is you find yourself partnering with someone who is complementary to you in some ways, but you find yourself really having longings and yearnings for connection in other ways. And so um, the question then becomes, well, okay, well, what do you, what, what do you then do with that? You know, what do you then do with that? And yeah, so I'll stop there, but that's, that's kind of my broad over overview on like the way that I start to think about the conversation. Yeah. It's interesting. So there's a couple a couple approaches one could take to the type of situation you're just describing that would mm-hmm. stop short of polyamory. Yeah. One would be to say something like, first, you work on your relationship. And mm-hmm. if that doesn't work, you consider splitting up and right. and finding a new one. Mm-hmm. And that can seem a little bit cruel, mm-hmm. but let, let's start with the working on it. So mm-hmm. – Jaffrey and I have started doing couples counseling to work on a few things for the first time, not in an emergency setting, but mm-hmm. like, okay, there's some stuff here to work on and it's sure. been fantastic. I mean, it's been, I'm, I'm, I've been raving about it mm-hmm. and it's been cool to find, to peel back. And I know that I have the privilege to pay for that kind of thing. And, you know, all, all those caveats aside, but it's been cool to peel back more layers of my wife, my spouse, yeah, yeah, and to look at like, okay, so some of these things that we don't do very well at providing for each other, like where could we do better and where should we look to friends or, or mm-hmm. other activities to like scratch some of these itches? Mm-hmm. And that has been – yeah, it's been cool. Like it's been mm-hmm. encouraging. I I feel right. like it has expanded in my mind the possibilities of a lifelong relationship with someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And there's different. So that's just step one. Do you want to say anything about that step? 
Well, so, so just to sort on the, on the personal level, then I would also just want to like jump in there as sort of like my own kind of like starting point. Right. So, I mean, I should, I should say, because I am like defending polyamory here, I should say that I'm not in a polyamorous relationship, but like, it is something that I support in principle. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because I know from my own experience that there, I mean, people are wired very differently. And sometimes you're just in a partnership that works well in a lot of ways, but there can be like an energy, like, like a, uh, inequality sometimes. So like, I'm a super intense person. I love to connect with people very deeply and like go, yeah, go to very deep places. And I am relationally high energy. So like, mm-hmm. I'm not like always high energy, like in life, but like when I'm relating to people, I tend to go deep and I tend to like really like intimate, sustained connection with people. And, uh, my husband, Martin is, he needs, he needs less intensity in life, to be honest. You know, he's just like, <laughs> okay, can we just not have this level of intensity all the time? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so it is unfair of me to expect him to be able to operate at my level of emotional intensity all the time. Yeah. And so that means that, I need to find my emotional connection elsewhere sometimes. And I'm right. again, we're not doing a polyamory, but like there are other ways to find that kind of a connection. Right. But like I am intrigued by people who are able to make spaces for intimate connections and to find intimate however you like, intimate connections that fill certain needs within them, but like still recognize that their existing partnership is basically a good one. Like, like yeah. you can recognize, oh my God, my, this guy and I, like we do life really well together. We're great parents together. We just are actually quite good at like coexisting together, like functional, being functional adults together. It's just that we have other desires and needs as well. I would say that's a pretty good description of what I have with Jaffrey. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of domains of each of our lives and needs that the other person does not do a very good job of filling. Mm-hmm. Uh, this podcast is is one example. It is a way for me to have a reason to really hit the ground hard on my need for complexity, depth, nuance, intellectual engagement, you know, religious engagement. And like she has nothing to do with it. Yep. She supports it kind of in theory yeah. <laughs> and yeah. listens occasionally. I mean, it's fine. It's totally fine. Uh, and at, at the beginning, I was maybe a little disappointed in that, but I really am not at all anymore. And mm-hmm. I just, it is my own thing. And I have, I have a number of female friends, you included, that like I get to talk about certain things with and get a mm-hmm. female perspective mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a real beauty to friendship with women that is different mm-hmm. than my friendship with men. If any of those friendships were to become sexual, it's not just what it, would it change about the friendship what would it do to the thing I have with Jaffrey? Mm-hmm. What's at stake there? What's the destructive potential of that? Mm-hmm. And that's the way to kind of, I think, think about it. And so there might be, you know, there may, of course, be some people who in actuality that does not cause destruction. Mm-hmm. I think those people are fewer than the people who think that it, they are the kind of person that it would not cause destruction. Mm-hmm. Just like the number of people who think that like, I don't know, diving a little deeper with the drugs that they like won't be mm-hmm. a problem. And mm-hmm. it might be true for a handful of people, but most mm-hmm. people it's going to be a problem. And I don't – that's not a perfect analogy. So don't don't email me about that. <laughs> 
But so you could you can look into your own relationship. You could eventually get to the point where you say, you know what, we're not good for each other and we should maybe consider getting divorced and maybe mm-hmm. I should find somebody else. That is not the first thing you do, but that often results in better lives for people in the long run. And mm-hmm. there's evidence that that's better for children than sticking together and being really acrimonious with each other. It's not as good as a healthy marriage, but it's better than a really unhealthy marriage where there's a lot of fighting. Clarifying question. Are, would you yeah. would you agree that what counts as a healthy, good marriage is not an objective measurement that can just be like examined because there are different perceptions of what yeah. is a good marriage, sure. right? So you can have, I mean, I know people, uh, yeah, I know a lot of people actually who exist in marriages where they are really happy together, but I'm like, oh my God, no. Like I could not exist it wouldn't in that be, marriage. It wouldn't be good for you. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. but no, and I'm not talking about just like the person, the people themselves. I'm talking about the quality the of the connection. Yeah. Sure. I'm like, yeah. oh God, no. But for them, yes. it totally works. Mm-hmm. So like, I think what is just the case is that you could have some people who are very happy to continue being married to somebody, but like would, would also want to explore other relational dynamics as well. And I think that you are getting really hung up on sort of the practicalities or the chances of success where I'm more curious about like the possibilities and exploring what happens when we remove the inhibitions that keep us from being honest with ourselves and with others in a long-term kind of way about this. So that's interesting that, so the inhibitions thing is a common pitch on the polyamory front, but I will say this as I have been in therapy grown, become more mature. My theology has widened much further. Uh, I believe I understand myself better, my story better, getting behind my unconscious bugaboos, you know, all that stuff, right? More flourishing, more self-actualization and integration. I recognize more how little I want to jeopardize my marriage, You know, in the times where I'm feeling sexually unsatisfied or something like that. Like, I don't, it's not like the more integrated I get, the more I'm like, oh yeah, we're all just kind of doing our thing. And I, what I think that is, and I'm laying my cards on the table, I think that that is maturity. Uh, That it's like a, Uh, uh, I know, I know, okay, (laughs) that's fine. But I think that it is a mature appraisal of the world more as it really is. Now it's for different reasons than I would have had being raised evangelical. That's what I want to be clear. It's not just like a, well, stick to this plan. Everything works out, deviate from the plan and you're punished. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that like, I think there's a reason that as societies have become more free and less patriarchal and less colonial, less, you know, whatever that like people tend to just like pick one person and, and pair with them. And when societies are very dominant, male dominant, whatever, you get a lot of polygamy and you get a lot of men who have a bunch of wives. And I don't think that we can just say that whatever was operating in the now, now I'm I'm adding on layers. I apologize. I'm not I'm not being the best debate partner here, but I don't think that we can just say that whatever animated all those asshole patriarchal men who wanted power and sexual power over women we're we're not dealing with that today in our modern times that's not any part of the ma- the male anyway the predominantly male 
interest in polyamory. That's not there. We're just liberated modern people. I want to call bullshit on that. Now, the female motivations, again, statistically average, whatever, all those caveats might be different. I don't know. I'm speaking as a male. Okay, so that was sloppy. I put a few things in there. (laughs) Take your time responding. Oh, my God. Yeah, like a lot going on there. First of all, okay, so first of all, the uh, maturity thing. Yeah, no, I really resist this. I mean, and I I resist this because it could partially be I where I fall on the millennial. I'm kind of like I'm not the upper limit of a millennial, but I'm sort of like the upper third of millennial age. Uh Right. And so, like, I feel like I was born in this like kind of sweet spot or like not sweet spot of of millennials where it's like we were told from like our, our whole lives. Don't expect the Disney princess fairy tale don't expect to fall in love with your prince charming and live happily ever after that won't happen you should marry someone who will be a good partner and has solid character and who cares if you're going to have like butterflies and you feel like you're just like in love with them all the time that is just infatuation you shouldn't worry about infatuation you should worry about long-term commitment and love and you can choose to love somebody you don't actually have to depend on your emotions and you should just grow up and commit to getting to commit to investing in this person and God will honor that relationship. That's the narrative that I grew up with. And I think a lot of people grew up with that and they're harmed by it because they're taught not to listen to their desires and not to listen to what is actually important to them and valuable to them relationally. And I'm still on learning that lesson, to be honest. And I really resist. I mean, I feel like it was actually I feel like I have actually made more decisions that looked mature on the outside and were actually signs of fear and immaturity on the inside. And I am now, I would think, learning to pay more attention to what actually makes me tick and to what I actually value in connection. And it doesn't look like every other marriage. I think like if I could just get like one thing across to the world, it would just be like in, in this in this area, it would be that people have different needs. People have different relational needs. They have different levels of connection that they legitimately desire. It doesn't mean that one model or another is wrong. A different model might work well for other people. And okay. So then the other thing you said is that like, this is like that polyamory is, is, is primarily like a male thing about, let's hold hold on to that. Let's just, but we will, we can come back to it. Okay. Let's talk. We can talk about patriarchy and male sex, whatever. Yeah. Let's just save that because I should, I, I brought it in because it was connected on my train of thought, but I should have waited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so your word desires is doing a lot of work here. Mm -hmm. I think that there are short-term desires and long-term desires, and those are often in quite a bit of conflict. When I say desires in this context, what I mean is lifelong patterns of connection. Yeah. Wherein you are flourishing and operating at your best. Yeah. Well, then great. I, that's also what I think people should be listening to when they are choosing a mate. Yeah. Uh, I, I like when you were giving that kind of old advice that you were raised on, I was like, I 75% agree with this, but I see the 25% where it was assumed that like we have, and there's a, I believe, yeah, this will air after my conversation with Heather Griffin, mm-hmm. which Sarah, you will, I think, love okay, and her great. kind of, her kind of yeah. paradigm of like, evangelical insta trust and sincerity culture and simple mm-hmm. bible facts it was paired with that kind of a thing this kind of naive epistemology yeah. about mm-hmm. the world so if you combine what you said the like you know it, butterflies and roller coasters are not what you really want for a long term commitment i actually think that's true but when you combine that with also 
just go to Bible college and you'll meet a perfectly suitable person because you have the same worldview. Like that's fucking false. So Mm -hmm. and then that is very harming because you're taking it's actually it's harming because here's what I would say. It's harmful because it's so close to being true. It has enough truth in it. But then it has this other bit that's totally false and that is paired with this arbitrary subcultural value. And so that's where it's not that it's not that the part about butterflies and roller coasters versus stability is wrong. I think that part's right, which is why so many people are taken in by the broader thing you said. That would be my view. And so I don't want to get rid of that part. I want to get I want to swap out the other part. And so if we are talking about flourishing and who I really am, uh, I, I think I've told this before, but I assumed for much of my young adulthood that I would need to marry a funny girl because anytime I interacted with funny women, I was so attracted to them. It is yeah. so fun for me. I yeah. love a good tete-a-tete. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I might be pronouncing that wrong. I just love the back and forth. As it turns out, I think that that would have been exhausting in a marriage. And I'm so glad that I married a woman who occasionally makes me laugh, has a very good sense of humor, but we are not one-upping each other with jokes. Mm-hmm. And we're not – and you know, everyone's different. For me, that would have actually been, I think, bad and would have been really rocky and tough. So, mm-hmm. OK. I think I've said it. I think you understand what I'm saying. I, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I can stop. Right. Yeah, I get it. And I don't I don't disagree with any of that. I think what happens usually is that more young people end up trusting their gut or their hormones or whatever, and they actually do end up marrying the person that they are infatuated with. And yeah. that chemistry, that organic chemistry serves them well. And evangelicals tend not to recognize the important role of chemistry and connection yeah. in what makes a good marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the way to reverse this is to just, you know, think about going to your evangelical pastor and saying, hey, uh, I think this person would be a great partner, but I have absolutely no connection to them and I am not attracted to them in the least. Should we get married? I bet most of them, if they're honest, would say, uh, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and then they would have to yeah. acknowledge that there is an appropriate role here for mm-hmm. listening to yourself. Like listen to your body, listen to your mind. Like you can like so many of us are hyper rational, have overthought everything that we've ever done in our lives. And uh I am that as well. Now I agree with you, like I married someone who is extremely different from me in almost every way imaginable. Martin and I are temperamentally very different. We find we have different senses of humor. We have different like cognitive styles. We have different emotional portfolios. And what he brings me is a shit ton of stability that I would not probably have if I was someone with someone who was perhaps connecting with me on the intensity level that I like, but, um, perhaps have the same weaknesses. So I'm all about the complementarity. I am, I really am. But I think what we're talking about here is whether or not we are, it's like a risk. It's like a, it sounds to me as if what we're talking about here is a cost benefit analysis, a risk analysis of what one might lose if you explore the potential for relational flourishing. So I actually am not one that thinks that you should necessarily go seeking a polyamorous relationship when you're at a point of weakness in your marriage. Mm. I think that you should consider it when you, when things are actually going pretty well. I don't think that you should use it as sort of like the last stop before divorce. 
because that will almost always just like end up in people. <laughs> like that's not a good idea. I think yeah. people usually things only, have been rough, yeah. so let's yeah. shake it up. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I would agree. It's just from as a therapist, that yeah. sound from a therapeutic. I'm not a therapist, but from a therapeutic perspective, that yeah. sound that makes more sense to me too. Of like, yeah, yeah. you okay. So that's good. Well, good so stipulation. I, so, so I think I think when I what I'm saying here is that you don't turn to polyamory as sort of like a last ditch effort to sort of keep us technically married. What I'm saying is that there may be when you're in a fairly good place and you recognize that you're not like totally flourishing, I think it's totally legitimate to have an honest exploration where you explore the relational possibilities for you and you have honest conversations. Are we both equally interested in this possibility? What are our trigger points? What would make what would be important for both of us if we were to explore this? And I also I think just to kind of go back to your earlier point, I don't think it's the case that this is just about men wanting to have more sex. I think if you were to get through the inhibitions and get like an honest sample of women, (laughs) you would find that a lot of women, perhaps even more women than men are longing for some sort of connection in their marriage beyond sex that they're not really getting. It would actually be really interested in sort of finding those sort of intimate connections with other people. That's my, my hunch is that a lot more women are unsatisfied with the connection in their marriage than men. I think men are more concerned on the whole, perhaps with the sexual frequency yeah. or intensity. Um, mm-hmm. And women, I think, have a on, on the whole, again, generalizing here, I think women on the whole have a kind of a broader palette in terms of connection. Yeah, I can only speak to the sort of male aspect of it. My sense is that there are a lot of situations in when in which it is very beneficial for males to present themselves as being an open-minded cosmopolitan. I think this was also true during the summer of love in the 60s and 70s. And I think that for most guys, that was not about breaking the bonds of patriarchy on 1950s society. As some, I'm sure there were some, a lot of them wanted to get laid. That's my that's my sense of what probably happened. And most polygamists, I think polygamist Mormon men who live today sort of outside the bounds of the official Mormon church will say that they are following the prophet, but a lot of them turn out to actually have inappropriate relationships with underage women. And Mm -hmm. there's some weird shit going on. And I start from a place of skepticism when thinking about men, Mm -hmm. about anything involving more female or more sexual partners. I I just do. That doesn't mean that does not apply to everybody, of course, but I'm just saying I but often are... think that the advocates of polyamory really downplay what seems to be true historically of men, especially who mm-hmm. have enough power to mm-hmm. suggest a relational dynamic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, I'm speaking as somebody, I mean, like, I'm definitely a feminist. I consider myself to be pretty self-aware about my own needs and desires and things. And I have a lot of friends who are quite similar And I for sure have found more women who are very interested in the relational possibilities before them. Mm -hmm. Whereas I find more men, in my experience, more, the more men than women that I've talked to have a sort of like, yeah, like, yeah, yes to sex, but yeah. Oh gosh. It's personally threatening. You know what I mean? It's sort of like a, a sort of like a push pull where it's like, they want more sex, but also like, Ooh, I'm really, I'm really worried about what this would do to my kind of core safety, my like citadel, my, my castle is going to be threatened if, if I, if I sort of like shake things up too much. It's interesting. I don't know what would count as the castle. I do know that the times I've ever thought about introducing another adult, it sounds 
incredibly exhausting to me. Okay. So let me ask you a specific question then. All right. So this, okay. Let's say that you're keep in mind, we do have to get to the research and we've got, although there's very little to say about it. Okay. Well, this is, this is just one specific example. And I, and I'm saying this, I shouldn't get too specific here. I have a, a, an acquaintance and this acquaintance's spouse. Okay. So it's like not close friends. So anyone who knows me, like, don't start trying to figure out who this is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, no, no one who is here is, it's not the person listening. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So I have acquaintances who are in various kink scenes. Okay. So mm-hmm. who have particular sexual desires and fetishes and kinks. And this is actually another conversation that we could have on a different day about kinks, the way that it's the kinks are shamed or considered to be completely inappropriate or off limits or something for Christians. And I actually think that's really unhealthy to sort of, to Hmm. sort of like sort of blackball people who are, who have very particular um, sexual interests. I think people are tend to also not be very honest when we're talking with each other about it, but so I'm, I'm interested in like, kind of like the dynamics in relationships when one person has a kink that the other does not share. Okay. So I have an acquaintance who has like worked out a sort, not really polyamorous relationship, but a sort of polyamorous relationship where this person has permission, relational kind of permission to explore this kink with other people because the spouse has no interest in it, right? Right. The the spouse is like, yo, we have our own good vanilla sex going on. Why do we, I don't want, I have no interest in this kink. I don't want to do it. Not only is it not a turn on, it's a turn off for me. I understand that you have a very valid like sexual desire here and expression. You go do you like come back and we can talk about it. So that's just my, that's my example of a very specific instance in which sexual exploration outside of the core relationship could work for both people. I would say, sure. There are discernment situations like that where people can, between themselves, maybe their therapist, God, whatever, you know, I'm not going to insert myself into those decisions. I feel like there are, I've kind of got two kind of big points left and we can sort of talk about them however you'd like one which i've sort of mentioned is like it just seems like in general when people are free they mostly choose to pair with one other person and that most of the times that people have not paired with one other person it is because they were not that free and so even though as we talked about with abortion autonomy is not the only value in the world autonomy is still very important to me and slavery and any form of slavery that that really restricts or semi-slavery where you have so little freedom that you basically have no choice who you will marry or if you will be married to a person who only has one wife or, for instance, whatever. That is the type of human society we should run from more than any other type of human society. Yeah. And yeah. so it is possible that some future exists where polyamory is normal and non-coerced. It's mm-hmm. possible. It's never happened before. And so I just consider me skeptical that it could happen on a large scale in a healthy way. That I'm not ruling it out. But especially if there are children involved, I'm very much not assuming that it will be the case and that I am free to be one of the early pioneers uh, risking my children's health. And we, we do need to talk about that. So the, the, the other bit is the research which does touch on the children's stuff. And then we can go wherever you want to go. There is almost none. That's the truth. There's just so little research. There are a lot of articles Mm -hmm. in peer reviewed periodicals and they are ideological essays. They are 
maybe this is linked to patriarchy. They are, how is this linked to whatever? And the empirical evidence is like, I found two studies. Mm -hmm. One of them is a quote longitudinal study, which means it takes place over years and measure or over time Mm -hmm. and measures relational satisfaction. Sounds promising. You say it was a two month long longitudinal study. (laughs) (laughs) which is just not nearly long enough to figure out anything in a situation like this. It, it found mild, you know, basically no change or whatever between the two groups. And then the other one is someone who studies children of polyamorous couples. uh, But all she does is interview those children. There's no, there's Mm -hmm. no experimental condition. She might be ideologically motivated. She might not be. It's difficult to tell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically the research can say almost nothing. Yeah. And so that's back to my burden of proof thing. Uh, there is research about children's outcomes for divorce and acrimonious remaining in marriage. You know, Mary Clements at Fuller, a conservative mm-hmm. psychologist is clear about this. You know, if, if you really can't make it work, get divorced. It's better for your kids. It's mm-hmm. better to be in a healthy relationship. But like, so we know that strife is bad for kids. Now, I I do think that there's like a little truth to the kind of polyamorous pitch that's like kids do well with a bunch of adults in their lives. And I actually Mm -hmm. think that that's true. But I think that we can be creative about how we get more adults into our children's lives. There is extended family, which, again, in our autonomous Western society, we -hmm. don't involve grandparents as much. We don't involve aunts and uncles and siblings as much cousins. Yeah. There is a church community. There are close family friends. You can you can choose to live. And this is another thing we don't do very well in our coastal cities, our, our urban, white collar, you know, move wherever the jobs are mentality. You can choose mm-hmm. to live walking distance from a number of your friends and, and have a thick social net for your kids. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's th- that's kind of the last of my stuff. And we can sure. talk about okay. each of those pieces however you want. Okay, okay. So here are my thoughts on the research front. Um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that it's, there's no research on polyamory because no one's open about talking about it. There's so few people who are talking about it. What I think would be more interesting is to look at the research on affairs. Because if you were to dig deep, I would guess that a lot of people who have affairs would love it if their spouse was open to polyamory because people who are having affairs are not ready to get divorced for one reason or another. You know what I mean? And so it'd be very interesting to sort of look more okay so at least with the gender difference right so we think we tend to we tend to sort of uh, like assume that like almost all the affairs out there are being like had by men but that's not actually the case i don't know if you've read esther perel mathematically um, it can't be the case well well, you could be you could be having an affair with somebody who's not married right so but like esther perel the state of affairs like she goes into this and it's like, you know, a lot of women, a lot of women are, are, are having affairs too. It's not just men. And so there, there are definitely like relational needs that are not being met in marriages sure. and people are desperate. People are desperate. Now, what is interesting to me, so sort of the, the person that I think is actually more common than we're kind of giving credit to is the person who is in a marriage where things are not awful. They're not, it's not awful. It's not acrimonious. The kids are not being harmed. Like, like, like they, mm-hmm. Both partners have just sort of gotten used to being kind of unhappy. It's not acrimonious. And like they're, they're, they're like responsible adults. They know how to like shield their child from like tension and stuff. And it's like, they're not really fighting. They're not fighting, you know, it's just like, they're both just like kind of coexisting. I think a lot of people are like this where they're just like in a relationship 
they they're they're not they're not super thrilled they're not flourishing but whatever they're surviving and i think that's that's the sort of interesting kind of like research population that i would like to know more about is like what would that group look like if like there was like a polyamorous like those people who are interested in polyamory and i think i mean the kids thing is a really interesting thing because we tend to we tend to sort of think about marriages like on a binary, like either you're having a a miserable, horrible marriage and you're fighting all the time and your kids are like being harmed. And as a last last ditch effort, one, you know, you decide to have a polyamorous relationship or on the other hand, you're having like a loving, amazing relationship where nobody has any desires to go elsewhere. Or the third option is that you just call it quits and get divorced. But like, I'm actually not convinced that all suboptimal marriages should end in divorce. I think sure. there are, I think they're all, I think that like, there are a lot of people out there who probably should not have gotten married, but did. And now they're married and they cohabitate and they have kids and it would be hard on the kids that they got divorced. And so like, well, maybe, maybe, why not? Like, why not explore polyamory? Those are the type of situations where I was trying to carve out more of an allowance for adult mm-hmm. conversations. Yeah. Um, and that's a complicated one. And I just, I, I, I don't know how to put myself in people's shoes in that situation. Mm -hmm. You talked about affairs, but there's some interesting stuff with affairs. In fact, when I was looking for the research, one of the articles I came across is was looking at polyamorous people who nonetheless still have affairs. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like in a situation where that's literally allowed, like – why would you do that? And and yeah. I'm not I don't I'm not trying to disparage those people. I'm just saying there seems to be something else that's like polyamory is not necessarily a solution yeah. to philandering, right? Like perhaps what an affair is doing for someone is the fact that it's and actually maybe this is all the time, the illicitness mm-hmm. is a lion's oh, share of the appeal. Yeah. And if that's true and it's no longer illicit, then you will find something else that's illicit because mm-hmm. if you wanted to do, for instance, like a a dialectical behavioral therapy approach, you would say like, mm-hmm. what are the antecedents and the, and the precedents? Like what's going on with this? What's it doing? What's its function? You have functional behavioral analysis. Mm-hmm. And if you take out the part where it's, you're doing something wrong, which gives you this big dopamine hit for breaking the rules or something. Well, mm-hmm. now it's not going to do that anymore. So you will find something else to do that in that case. To, to change the context would yeah. not be to solve the problem. It's mm-hmm. to not need a dopamine hit by doing something yeah. illicit, right? So that's that's an empirical question that is really sure. that is really interesting. I don't I have no I have actually no real good instu- intuitions on like where that one would lead. I think I think so sort of like my cards on the table here. Um, I've been playing kind of devil's advocate the whole time, but yeah. my sense is that most my okay, my gut sense here is that most people who are in polyamorous relationship really wish they were with their one true love, and they don't mm. have that, and so they're trying to figure out something else. <laughs> well, and that's and that's interesting, and I don't. It's hard to know. Human beings are an interesting species. We don't have a lot of information about pre-agricultural humanity. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for most of our biological past, we don't really know much. We know that we were in hunter-gatherer tribes. I think there's some indication that those might have been closer to polyamorous or something like that. But again, in a more survival setting, mm-hmm. power is kind of everything. And so it, it is probably very naive yeah, to think yeah, of yeah. Prehistoric hunter gatherers as living in some sort of like utopian 60s style love in, 
I doubt it. And, you know, like we don't want to go back to those relational dynamics where whoever has the biggest no. club, you know, and is willing to be the most ruthless or something, you know. Oh, club in parentheses. No, I, I literally meant club. <laughs> I, I also highly doubt that sexual hierarchy in prehistoric humans was based on penis size. That seems unlikely <laughs> when there are like tigers running around. And if and if trucks are any indication, it might have been actually the opposite, <laughs> inversely related. Anyway, I don't yeah, I don't know what else to say, really. I, I just think like this is something that I something I realized is that in the classic sense of the term conservative, I am epistemologically yep. somewhat conservative. In fact, the yep. more the more I learn about peer reviewed research, the more I work towards my own doctorate, think about my future clients, think about the lifespan, all that stuff, I get more epistemologically mm -hmm. conservative, not less. Now, that doesn't mean I am politically or sociopolitically conservative. That's different. Although there is some overlap. And I think that my positions on abortion mm -hmm. and polyamory are an example of times when being epistemologically conservative will lead yeah. me to more socially conservative viewpoints. Yeah. But for instance, it leads to a lot of theological liberalism because I go, okay, what do we think we know about atonement? And, you know, yeah. all these things that I'm like, hold off a little bit, you know, like, let's mm -hmm. be, let's pump the brakes here and, and check our confidence, mm -hmm. our mm -hmm. unwarranted confidence at the door. But in a situation like this, where people's core relationship, their spouse or their partnership and their children, mm -hmm. these are like the two things in your life that are most precious Mm -hmm. uh, when, 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 and if you have them, they are the most related to your own well-being and your future prospects and your various outcomes, physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever, emotionally. And so like, they're the two things like to, to fuck with last, you know, yeah. if you're just tinkering around, that's not the one to tinker around with. Try a new car, try a new career, yeah. try, you know, if you need to tinker, so that's so that's I'm acknowledging I'm acknowledging mm -hmm. that that is a conservative approach. I think it's warranted. I think I could be wrong, but that's my take. Yeah, yep. no, that's I think that's I think that's really fair. I think it's a really a solid point. Um, I think my kind of closing thought here would be that like the most one of the larger meta issues in this conversation conversation that I find the most interesting is the temperamental or like personality differences that people have on approaching it. Like, yeah. I think Dan, my suspicion, my hunch is that you in some ways are like more conservative in orientation and like sort of like the, actually, I don't know. Actually, where are you on the openness scale? Openness to experience. Mm -hmm. Openness uh, to experience. I'm like 90th percentile or. Okay. So like, I'm like, I'm like 120. No, I'm pretty high. I'm pretty okay, high. Right. It's yeah. Right. I'm so definitely, this might, be a, this might be a hypothesis that it fails then, but, but like my, I think that it is true, though, that there are some people who there are probably a lot of people, I think, statistically, who are just like, oh, my God, I just have like way too much shit in my life. That's the last thing I want to worry about is a polyamorous relationship. And I just have like a guy like, just am not I don't even want to think about it, let alone explore it. And I think there are other people who like yeah. could be in the exact same quality of marriage and or like kind of like a monogamous relationship and have the exact opposite response being like. Oh yeah, I'm in the exact same quality of relationship as this person over here, but I am really interested in this. Like, and I think that that I think there are just like again coming back coming back to my original point that there are just different contexts in which people thrive relationally, mm -hmm. and that 
like there's, I don't think this is a situation. This is a, a subject in which there is a clear answer for any one subset of people. Yeah. And, and to that extent, I agree with you. And and I, like, I think I'm, like I said, I'm just like, just, it should be at the bottom of the list of things you tweak, you know, like mm. try everything else first because there's less at stake. Unless you are somebody for whom relational like connection is what the most important thing to you. No, you, even if you're that person, oh try, <laughs> try, <laughs> try other, other things, other things that relate to relational satisfaction and okay, expression. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, I, mean, okay, okay. I, I don't mean try, I don't mean leave your marriage alone and get mm-hmm. a car. I mean like, yeah, you could get it and change jobs or whatever you, you can do therapy. You can, if you can't afford therapy, you can just meet with another couple and talk through stuff that someone yeah. who feels safe. You can just talk to each other. You mm-hmm. can, I mean, there's just a lot of things you can do. You can consider what friends and what activities fill in other parts for you. I mean, you just get creative uh, is all I'm saying. I, I'm not. So we disagreed some, but we agreed some. This is an interesting conversation. Yeah, I think I think where we disagree is that, like, I don't think polyamory is only to be considered in, like, desperate times. I think it's actually something that can be considered a an, an area of positive exploration for some people rather than a solution to a particular problem that could be fixed yeah. by marriage counseling. And I allow that that might be true, but I'm quite skeptical of it. Or right. if it, or if it is true, it's true for a lot fewer people than think it's true for them. That's, but that doesn't mean zero. I agree. I that agree doesn't mean zero people. Yeah. I, agree. I think I would, I, I would say that. Okay. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me as always. I love talking to you about complex issues I think you mm-hmm. handle complexity very well. Thank and you. it's a it's a joy to talk through and this one I had some trepidation but I think we got through it. I think it worked no. out all right. I think I you know if I'm going to say anything for us as friends, I think it is that we both handle complexity. We're both very comfortable with complexity. Mm-hmm. And when you bring two people together who do uh, enjoy complexity even the most contentious topics can be non-threatening. So, it's fun yeah. times. And also when you bring together two people who love complexity, even the simplest topics can be unresolved. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But these are not simple topics. So these are good ones for us to talk about. Yeah. We're not, we're not making them more complicated than they are. They are in fact complicated. All right. Yeah. Great. Well, have a great rest of your evening. Thank you. Bye. You are now listening to the song Peaches off of my new record under the moniker Havana Swim Club. If you'd like some summertime poolside or study work jams for your focus playlist, or I don't know if you just like listening to this kind of stuff for whatever reason, uh, you can check it out on Spotify and everywhere else. The links are in the show notes. Uh, Thank you as always to Josh Gilbert, my editor, my, my confidant and friend and partner in crime. And of course to Sarah Lane Ritchie, my dear friend, for going to difficult places with me uh, regularly on this show. I think that's about it. We will see you guys for another episode next week. Mm-hmm.